that guy's movies are already on drugs. Radio Drome. Welcome to a very comfortable episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the Cecil himself. I'm back again. And Peter woke up this week, so he's here. I'm never comfortable. <laughs> We're never comfortable with you, so does that That's help? That's okay. That's totally okay. If you guys want to be uncomfortable in a pleasant way, you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also, we are now sponsored by NordVPN. If you guys go to 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN. It will take you to the Nord site where Nord for VPN, it'll protect your data, it'll help you access region locked content. There are other things that you might be able to use it for that we can't exactly promote. You should be surfing nowadays with a VPN. I think you're an idiot if you don't use a VPN. And if you go through that link 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN, you'll get 75% off a three year plan. That's $2.99 a month for protection, region-locked content, and other things. So go to NordVPN. It helps us out. So tonight, what we're going to talk about is what happens when a director moves outside their comfort zone. And sometimes it we, well, we might have to look at why they move outside their comfort zone. And by that, I mean, like, you've got a guy who makes six horror movies, and then he goes and makes a kid's film. And you go, well, that was a little weird. Yeah, George Miller went from making... uh Great little post-nuclear Australian car chase movies, and then then he made Babe. Well, he only produced Babe. He directed Babe: Pig in the City. He yeah. directed the sequel, but still, he only he still produced that. It. And it's very different from what you'd normally see from him. And then he slams back in with something like Fury Road. I, I feel like George Miller is a filmmaker that can step out of his comfort zone and back into it very naturally. I would very much call him a very versatile filmmaker that that can do that sort of thing. Would you say he has happy? feet that's right he did happy feet as well he he? did happy feet yes he has happy feet too he did happy feet and happy feet too and then fury road it's like and was uh, gonna do a he was originally set to do the justice league movie at some point as well yeah but that's a totally different thing that never even came close to happening that still would have been cool though i think that he is a director who uh is incredibly versatile and uh does what he wants to unfortunately i think it's a sad look if you go and look at his imdb he doesn't really have that many he's got 18 credits that's like depressing like he's somebody who should have way more and i mean and three of two short actually i'm sorry three shorts and like he he did an episode of a miniseries there's another short there's another segment of a documentary and so really he doesn't have that many movies under his belt and it's sad because he's really versatile he's very talented and he should be doing more and Mm. we don't have much time with him left to be able to continue to make movies. So I think it's because he puts so much of himself into his projects, though. Like if you if you look at obviously like Road Warrior and, and Mad Max and even some of his other smaller movies or even like Fury Road, like he really is one of the most balls out action filmmakers in particular. Like the the stunts that he manages to get people to pull off, the the cinematography, how like dangerous a lot of shit looks. Like I think he just burns himself out on every movie and needs like. Like, a lot of time in between. Like, I think it could be something to that effect. I still do consider, like, Witches of Eastwick inside his wheelhouse. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's still it's supernatural and all that. But that's a little more Lifetime movie e than you would have expected prior to him, you know, producing Babe. Why do you think he was a real-world doctor... And he had all of these, you know, action car chase movies and, you know, the chain reaction or an American nuclear run and, you know, cars smashing people and shotguns to the face. And then he said, 
you know what? I want to make a movie about a cartoon dancing penguin. Like I said, you you get used to a director. They're in their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And then it's strange when they move out of it. Like Tom Holland. We all know Tom Holland for writing Psycho 2 and making Fright Night and Child's Play. Everything he's done is horror. Very horror, yeah. Except the 1987 Whoopi Goldberg police comedy Fatal Beauty. And you just scratch your head going, what happened? (laughs) Did, Did you need to pay your rent this month? Tom Holland or were you trying because sometimes it's this is all that's available like with Toby Hooper he took whatever was available after his career tanked so fine with Toby Hooper with Tom Holland maybe it was I want to see if I can make a non-horror film it's just so strange when you're like Fatal Beauty yeah that was the child's play Fright Night guy Well, look at it this way, though. He discovered Brad Dourif because of Fatal Beauty. He was working, because that's actually in the the documentary. He talks about that, about how he discovered him in Fatal Beauty, you know, working on Fatal Beauty, and he loved his cynicism. He loved his voice, and he knew that he would have been the perfect Chucky. And Mm. so, consequently, coming out of something like that, we ended up with one of the most iconic horror, you know, characters. Right, I get that, but I'm just saying what led him into Fatal Beauty from Fright Night to that. It, that's not, a, want, na- that's not likes, a natural um, progression. Maybe he likes Whoopi Goldberg and maybe enjoyed working with her and had always wanted to work with her. Maybe he just wanted to try something different. I mean, some filmmakers feel like they just want to dip their feet into different genres to see what they can do, to see what they can pull off. Yeah, I mean, because well, if you, if you, you know, just I mean, do Stallone the same comedy thing... And that was a horrendous failure, but I mean, at least he tried. Yeah, he tried. Thing is, if you are somebody who's a director and you're kind of known for one thing, then you limit yourself to just that one thing and you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. That's why, like Kevin Smith, when after he got out of uh, doing the, the Jersey movies, when he kind of wrapped things up with uh, with Clerks 2, he had enough FU money where he's like, you know what? I just kind of want to make I was going to retire, but now I'm going to kind of spread my creative wings i'm just gonna make the movies that i want to make the stuff that i want to try and he did a buddy cop film but he did he did a buddy cop film for his dad uh he did a horror film he did all these different kinds of genre films and whether or not you like them is not really the point it's that he has the ability to be like okay i can get these you know uh financed and i'm going to make the movies that i want to make and if they live or die whatever it's like i'm trying something different he's a filmmaker that is going by his own creative juices, not what a studio is telling them to make. You have certain directors who their styles just do not lend themselves to too far outside their genre. Like, Mm -hmm. what if, like, would you guys think anyone would go, you know what we really need? A sweet romantic comedy from Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) You just, his style absolutely would not fit that. There are certain directors. We're getting a Star Trek from Tarantino. Yeah, okay. First of all, that is never going to happen but whatever i don't know man like i i think right now they're in such a like they don't know what to do with when it comes to that i'll believe it when i actually see a trailer Oh, I'll believe it when I see it too, but I'm not completely discounting it. I, it's something that's so bizarre. It just feels like it's something that could happen. I'm thinking something like a director's style. And no, this is a fantastic movie, so I'm not crapping on the film, but I just would never have thought a history of violence from David Cronenberg. There's mm. nothing in that movie that's Cronenbergian. Well, cause David Cronenberg has a very, I mean, everyone boils it down to body horror. That's not it. He's more complex than that. That. When, when you think of a relatively straight lace, I mean, you could call it a crime thriller. It's kind of is. You do not think of David Cronenberg. You but know, it, it still really has his. Um, like, I guess you don't agree, but I feel like it still feels like very much like one of his movies. It has little bits of of him in there, but mostly it does feel like a very a, m- more of a straight crime thriller. It's a terrific one. I'm not discounting. I'm not saying that it's bad, but I mean, like, if if I didn't know going in. After I'd be like, he, it was directed by who? 
Yeah, th- th- see, that's what I mean about certain directors' styles do not lend themselves to certain things. Like, all of a sudden, if it was announced that Richard Stanley was making Spice World, as we talked about a few episodes ago, you'd go, yeah, those two things don't really go together, you know? Um, and his stamp, uh, his creative stamp would be all over it, too. Like, you'd be oh. able to see that it was Stanley. I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> be I know you would have. Look at it from the perspective of, you know, he'd made Dust Devil, he'd made Hardware where the style of those two movies does not lend itself to a wacky pop comedy. (laughs) No, but it would have been amazing. (laughs) But, okay, uh, how about something like when you really step outside your comfort zone, like like with David Lynch? Okay, first of all, I don't know if people have seen these, but if, if you guys grew up in the 80s, For some reason, New York City, and these were aired nationwide in in some places just as regular campaigns, the New York City Littering Council went to David Lynch and said, can you make us anti-littering commercials? And they are kind of what you think they are from David Lynch. Who thought David Lynch was the right person for this? You know, to make anti-littering PSAs. And he also did some of those, you know, you're against drug PSAs. When you see some of the David Lynch anti-drug... Which, which, like, because I've seen a um, lot of those. Pretty sure this one was one of his, where that guy, the, the camera just slowly is pulling out, and a guy walking in a circle, talking all really, really fast, and it's about cocaine, and he's just walking in a circle in a room all by himself. Yeah, that, that, that's very Lynch. But, that's awesome. Okay, I'm not complaining that he did these. I'm saying, what is the thought process that said, you know who we need to do these PSAs to get people to stop littering? in New York? The eraser head guy. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it could just be somebody who's a huge fan of his, and it's like, you know what would be really wild if we did anti-drug PS- PSAs but got David Lynch to do them? Because that guy's movies are already on drugs. <laughs> It's so bizarre, but isn't it so bizarre that you think David Lynch made anti-drug and anti-littering public service announcements? It doesn't mesh in the brain. It's really cool. Have you guys seen his anti-littering ones? (laughs) They play like f***ing horror movies. (laughs) I'm not joking. Oh, that sounds awesome. But speaking of David Lynch, okay, David Lynch, very distinct style. You know what you're getting or the Lynch movie to a degree. And then have any of you ever seen 1999's The Straight Story, where a kindly old countryman rides a lawnmower across the country to meet his dying brother. It it feels like a Lifetime movie, and you just think to yourself, David Lynch directed this. Like, Dune David Lynch? (laughs) This is not some other guy just named... Seriously, this has no David Lynch trademarks, stamps, or anything. You would never guess he directed a straight story. Okay, then, I guess he wanted to make something Lifetime movie-y, just for fun, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I've never seen that one, so I can't really comment on it. It it doesn't really sound like something I'd watch anyway. I haven't seen it either, so I I don't know. Okay, how about something with... I, I, I understand the whole, we, we've discussed it in this, the expansion, you want to broaden your horizons. But when I think of Sam Raimi, okay, a simple plan, I can see that. You know, it's a crime thriller, it's very character driven. I can see a simple plan from Sam Raimi. The one I don't see is, for the love of the game, Sam Raimi said, I want to make a baseball movie. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? Sure, I mean, it's sure. just it's it's just a baseball movie, I and you I ask yourself that one either because I mean I don't really give a toss about baseball, so same here. I I actively, with the exception of a very few, the Sandlot. Major League, Major League, or Major League, Major League is another got, one. The cast in that is just amazing. I mean, or or Field of Dreams, but again, like those are like kind of movies with baseball in them. They're yeah. not. They're more just like character-driven, either dramas or comedies, with baseball kind of just, it's there as like background noise. Right. Most baseball movies, I just don't care because I don't like sports ball. But if you think about it, no, I haven't seen this movie since 1999, so I don't remember if it has these aspects or not. But if you think about it, you know how Sam Raimi loves the shot of of the camera right behind an object traveling? A baseball movie, in theory, his style is perfect for a baseball movie, though. You could have had POV. V baseball flying at the the bat and then going into the audience following the ball you, you know I, I mean like I said I haven't seen the movie in you know it's literally 20 years at this point and I only saw it once and I didn't like it his style actually does lend itself 
I mean, I, I'm totally picturing like not not so much Evil Dead, but like Crime Wave. That style absolutely could fit for a baseball movie. Well, his like his POV style could work for certain things. Like I said, like you know the baseball being thrown or, or being hit or whatever. Is any of that in the film? I don't remember. Like I said, it's I only saw it once, and that was 20 years ago. Well, but then you've also got stuff like Quick and the Dead. It's a great movie, but I don't think of Sam Raimi when I think of westerns. But, but he, it does his feel style like is a kind Raimi. of there though. Like it feels very kind of it feels more like army of darkness than the first two evil dead films or crime wave but i can definitely see his sort of boisterous eye-popping like dramatic angle kind of style in uh, in quick and the dead and I, I think his style very much does lend itself to to a western particularly the way he shoots like action sequences um particularly the way they're shot in like movies like army of darkness the if you watch the quick and the dead it has a lot of the earmarks of Raimi. It very much, you can tell that it's his movie. Yeah, there's a lot of like cool sort of epic looking zoom ups and the way the angles look, the the color, like just the overall vibe feels very much like a companion piece to something like Army of Darkness or even like Evil Dead 2. And I, I don't disagree at all. I just, when I think of a Western, Sam Raimi's not the name I think of <laughs> as a director. But but at least he gave us a really cool one. That's just one of my one of my personal favorites. I, I can't remember if it was in, in his book or Bruce Campbell's book where he talks about, where, you know, one of them, depending on which perspective you're talking about, talked about Bruce Campbell's cameo and it basically came down to Sam saying, if I gotta pour a bunch of bugs on somebody, let's get Bruce. <laughs> He's up for it. Bruce will be up for it. Bruce will let me pour bugs all over him. <laughs> of course. Before we move on with some other examples, why do you think certain directors get pigeonholed, if you will. You've got someone like Sam Raimi. Okay, he started off with Evil Dead, and then he didn't even make another horror film. He made Crime Wave, which I think is a fantastically underrated movie. I think Crime Wave, I mean, even listening to the commentary, Sam and Bruce do not like the movie, and I'm like, guys... I know this is a sore spot for you, but I love the movie as a viewer. So piss <laughs> off with your, this movie sucks and we wish it never got made. Okay? I love Crime Wave. And you can see Sam Raimi's, maybe I'm being dismissive here, but he has sort of a Looney Tunes-esque style sometimes. He kind of totally. does, yeah. Um, well, not so much Looney Tunes, but definitely Three, Three Stooges, which he's got on the record and saying he's like a huge fan of that yes. brand of slapstick humor. So he does implement it into a lot of things, particularly, like, probably Evil dead too the most and a little bit in uh, crime wave but he does he has a soft spot for that kind of stuff because him and bruce and ted made all those like super eight movies where they were like mimicking mimicking the stooges and whatnot so that kind of stuff does rub off into his work just because it's something that he really enjoys which is why everyone's i don't even know if i would peg sam raimi as a horror director because i mean you, you look at something you just go through his filmography there are horror movies there there's like one horror and movie there's a, really like evil dead one pretty much is like i think his um most genuine actual horror film well there's like drag me to hell and stuff like that oh that but, movie sucks <laughs> oh it, it does but that's not what we're talking about but nothing nothing scary ever happens in that movie i think i don't think he was ever destined to truly be a, a horror guy like he even even with how like gruesome and bloody Evil Dead is, and there's a woman being raped by a tree, and then you think about that for a second, and you're like, "There's a f***ing woman being raped by a tree! Like this is ridiculous! Like it's awesome well, and it's hilarious and it's so much fun." But I think Raimi was destined to do more like over the top action stuff. Like I feel like where he really shines is stuff like Evil Dead Two, Army of Darkness, Crime Wave. Uh, Dark Man, his his style was perfect for Dark Man. Dark Man, oh, Dark Man is amazing. That's that's the perfect kind of movie for him, which is what I was moving into. Dark Man, which leading into Spider Man. I love his his Spider Man movies. Even three, I have a bit of a soft spot for. I feel like over the top action slash super heroics and stuff is really where where he came to shine. Because because you know you have a character like Ash, who's kind of you know like a badass anti hero type of guy, and the Evil Dead movies center around him, and he becomes more and more of a badass as the movies progress, you know, with, like, Army of Darkness. And then Darkman was such a perfect project for him. And he really brought, ended up bringing Spider-Man to life in such a cool way. So I feel like Sam Raimi, though, starting in low-budget horror is really more of an action 
action slash superhero director. Or at least, like, that's, in my opinion, that's where he truly shines. Do you think sometimes this comes down to the director accidentally finding their their voice, if you will? Like, you know, if your first movie, for whether you wanted it to be your first movie, if it was just your first opportunity, is a horror film, then everyone's like, oh, you're a horror film director. Mm. You don't get to do sci-fi. You don't get to do character pieces. You don't get to do historical dramas. Or do you think that's something that is sought out? Like in the case of John Carpenter. Okay, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 feels John Carpenter. And, you know, you got Halloween and the Fog and the Thing. A lot of his early films are very, like, horror-based. Even, like, Escape from New York in a lot of times throughout the film feels more like a horror film than an action film. Because it's very movie... Assault on on Precinct 13 is basically a zombie movie without zombies. It's a straight up, yeah. It's a zombie movie, but instead of zombies, it's like a gang trying to overtake a police station. And it's, it's very much shot like a horror film. Again, like, that sort of atmosphere, a lot of shadows, a lot of mood, feels very much like a horror film, even though it's written as kind of an action film. Same with same with Escape from New York. There's a lot of very, like, foreboding moods in that film, particularly when Snake first arrives and that, that weird guy shows up to tell the the SWAT crew or whatever that they've taken the president's finger. The, those weird, that weird, like, cannibalistic tribe or something that lives, like, under the sewers has a very, very creepy vibe to it. I feel like with, with somebody like John Carpenter, he was kind of always destined to be the, the horror guy, and I think he, he wants it that way. I feel like horror might be his favorite thing even though he is still very good at like action and even some comedy stuff you know like like big trouble in little china is a phenomenal action satire film but even that has like random elements of of of, like horror in it like sort of more supernatural spooky kind of horror like i feel like that's just his wheelhouse whereas in comparison you have somebody like james cameron who started with horror stuff who started with piranha 2 and even the first terminator movie is more of like a body count thriller horror kind of film it's almost like a science fiction slasher in a lot of ways ended up moving into more boisterous big huge muscled action films like like true lies and terminator 2 and and the the better part of the ending of titanic some guys will start in horror because i feel like it might be one of the genres that's a little bit easier to get into especially if you know people already in the industry like you know he was working for the likes of roger corman doing set design for him doing matte paintings for john carpenter and and kind of fell into directing some horror, doing Piranha, not, yeah, Piranha 2, and then, you know, the first Terminator still had a bit of that Corman, Corman horror vibe to it. I think he was still sort of stuck in that period, and then eventually went on to do more science fiction, action-based kind of stuff, which I feel like is what he's truly impassioned about. I think that's what James Cameron really loves to do, is science fiction and action, and telling the, at the same time, telling a very human story. That's what I feel like he wants to do whereas Sam Raimi's kind of the, kind of the opposite in a weird way everybody kind of considers him like this horror icon but I see him more as the superhero action action icon like movies like Darkman stand out to me in such a big way and same with like Army of Darkness and whatnot so I feel like it's sort of where the director decides to which direction the director the director decides to propel themselves toward it's it's pretty evident when you look at the, the works of certain directors like George Miller sure he ended up doing, you know, directing Babe, Pig in the City 2 and Happy Feet, but it brought him full circle all the way back to Max and the Wasteland and the car chases and stuff with Fury Road, and he brought it to us bigger and with more explosions and more over the top than than we've ever seen it before. But at the same time, look at something like John Carpenter's career, where uh, I want to touch on the Western element in just a second, but the Elvis movie. I get it. He always loved Elvis, but you don't consider, you know what, for this Elvis biopic, let's get the Halloween guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or Starman. I think he just. You know, you, oh, I love Starman though. Oh, that feels Starman. like a fantastic. Except Starman is a. It's a love story. It's much more family friendly. It's but nothing it's what you would Carpenter think. Her love story though, because it's so weird. But but this is after the thing in Christine. Well, yeah, but I you don't like see this. A better example though is the Elvis movie because that one that one really doesn't feel like Carpenter. Carpenter basically said he's like I was doing horror movies and they were bombing so it was time to time to start to try to do something different. I mean his what people a lot of people think like his movies now are classics. 
But if you go back and you look at the box office on his stuff, his movies, especially his horror movies, almost all of them bombed horrendously. And it's terrible. Like, the audiences just didn't, they weren't ready for it at the time. Right. But then the other thing is, and this kind of goes to his style, he has a very Western feel. I don't mean Western, like, Western part of the world. Like, you, you look at Escape from New York. You look at Assault on Precinct 13. You look at some of his later stuff, like Vampires. They live. It, it feels like like a modern day western in a lot of these cases. And he loves westerns. He loves Rio Bravo and all of these Howard Hawks westerns. And so, is it weird that is only ever made one western and it was a TV movie nobody watched? Is it so strange that his work is so influenced by the westerns he grew up with, yet he never really made any? Maybe he didn't want to. Like, oh no, he, no, trust me, he wanted to. He said so in interviews. Nobody wanted him for a Western. And, and then when he made that one, that TV movie, he, he said, now people see why they didn't want me for Westerns. For some reason, he's not good at directing a Western, but yet Westerns have influenced all of his other work, which is just bizarre to me. Well, people have different skills and they, they like certain things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be good at doing certain things that they like. Well, okay, then, what about when a director, technically this isn't stepping outside their comfort zone because they didn't have a comfort zone yet. How George Romero, before he made Night of the Living Dead, used to direct episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Is it strange that you can watch old Mr. Rogers and see directed by George A. Romero and you, you wait, what? Well, in that case, it's a job. You know, you're, he's learning his ropes and he's building up to uh, how many uh, people have gone on to do action and horror movies that were music video directors or that sort of, so it really when when like it would be different to a certain degree when you have somebody like let's say you had uh, George Romero and then he started to direct episodes of like Pocoyo or something then it it would be uh that would be very odd unless his career really took a dive and he needed to take the jobs that he could which I have seen happen where you have uh, directors like that will end up doing stuff uh, just basically as a job Toby so, Hooper Toby Hooper, yeah, sadly. Well, but then, like, George Romero also, and this is after Night of the Living Dead, and this is after Season of the Witch, he directed an O.J. Simpson sports documentary. Because, I guess. Maybe he really liked the juice. It's actually called The Juice is Loose. (laughs) That's actually the title of it. I'm not kidding. What about something like Stuart Gordon? You know Stuart Gordon. The wonderful ice cream suit. I was, okay, there's the wonderful ice cream suit. That's a Ray Bradbury story. So, I mean, I can see why Gordon would be interested. Yes, his style is strange for that one. Fine. But I can see it. But he also did, I don't know why, he did a kid's fire safety video with a bunch of ex-Saturday Night Live stars that he directed called Kids Safe. And I'm sorry, not what I think of from Stuart Gordon. I don't think of some Saturday Night Live people goofing around in fireman costumes and pretending to be 11-year-old girls trying to teach kids about fire safety with Joe Flattery from SCTV. Not what I was thinking. They had they had a couple of bucks and they wanted to do something silly. I don't know. Well, I'm you know what I'm more curious about that situation is just how you got Stuart Gordon. Like what I want to know though is what, what was the process of hey we're going to be doing this kids safety video we've got some ex Saturday Night Live stars who should we get to make it? How about the guy who made From Beyond and Reanimator? I know him. I mean how how does someone get involved in something like this? You know? Yeah, I can't really think of anything kid friendly that he's done besides that that's pretty weird because i mean the wonderful ice cream suit cecil as you you know pointed out yes he did that and that's a ray bradbury story but it's not kid friendly it's just more family it's more lighter family material wouldn't you agree but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily like a kid's thing yeah it's uh more family movie than kids movie so it's, it's just weird when when you see Stuart gordon for that wes craven is the one that really strikes me as strange in this regard he made porn back before he made hills have 
Popeyes and stuff. You know, he he did like Angela Fireworks Woman as Abe Snake. But mm-hmm. yes, that's that's Wes Craven. Strangely, okay, he doesn't have a, a huge style to him, but you can kind of go, you know what? I see some Wes Craven in this porno movie where she's jacking the guy off into her mouth and stuff. I can kind of see this because there <laughs> is a style to it, you know. And then he he did some Twilight Zones. This this is what's strange. On paper, you go, I can see Wes Craven doing Twilight Zone episodes. That makes sense. And you go, yeah, of the five Twilight Zones he did, four of them are comedy episodes. You don't think of Wes Craven for comedy, though, do you? All those uh, stupid cops from Last House on the Left, I guess. All right, I will give you that one. Which is so out of place. As Nightmare on Elm Street was a horror movie, but it did have little bits of humor in it. Much more so later, so much so that people, when they think Freddy, they think of the comedian that he turned into. Whereas in the beginning, he had a little bit of a dark humor uh, side to him. But uh, I don't know. I think he's always kind of had a bit of uh, dark humor. So that pops up in all his movies. There's so some I don't... good humor in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. My favorite exchange between the, uh, I guess, the teens is, um, no, I will Woke up with a heart on this morning. Had your name written all over it. How would that be possible? How is there room on your name, uh, room on your dork for four letters? Up yours with a twirling lawnmower. That's pretty great. <laughs> that is. Well, well, see, when it comes to Wes Craven, though, the real, wait, what? Came in 1999 when he directed Music from the Heart, a family-friendly musical. And you just, uh, now I get it. He was a music teacher before he was a director, so he's always had music, no pun intended, in his heart. Holy sh! Not the movie I would have expected from Wes Craven. I mean, like, even Vampire in Brooklyn. You go, okay, I can still see it. It's got the horror elements. There's gore in it. Yes, we all know Eddie Murphy actually ran that show. But, you know, Vampire in Brooklyn, I see it. Music from the Heart is the, well, that was out of nowhere from Wes Craven. I actually haven't seen that one. You don't want to. It's, It's not very good. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, and some he, of these, though, we got to consider, though, a lot of times, whenever you see somebody doing something really far out, sometimes it's a choice, and other times, it's just work. Yeah, that's I, I, true. I get that, but Wes Craven did an episode, he he directed an episode of Disney's Magical World of Disney in 1986. This is after Twilight Zone. This is after Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't think he was desperate for jobs I just wonder what led him to being hired to do a mainstream Disney television episode. I don't know. A lot of money. A lot of money. He was a, a big name that they probably pulled out of a hat. Let's get him to do it. I don't know. It could be a lot of factors. The, the entertainment industry is a weird place. You know, Vic, I think Victor Salva is still getting work, and he's a, he's an actual pedophile. Seriously. Yeah, like, really. Gutting. Now, initially with him, not to get into that whole, you know what, I'm not even going to get into that, that whole wormhole. He can go f*** himself. Yeah. I agree with that. He can f***ing die. And uh, anyone who goes, well, I still like the Jeepers Creepers movies. I don't care. You know what? No. You are encouraging and you are subsidizing a convicted pedophile. F*** the Jeepers Creepers movies and f*** any of you that are like, well, I still like him as movies. You're the problem. Yeah. But back to the topic. Seeing that Abel Ferrara also did porn where he directed, wrote, and starred in porns under the name Jimmy Boy L. So you might not know it's Abel Ferrara. Like Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy cat there's a specific (laughs) hey it was a hardcore you can see with his style though that he would have directed some 70s porn though like let's be honest yeah exactly which is what brings me to the 1988 tv movie the gladiator his visual style is still all over this have either of you seen 1988's the gladiator at the tv movie i have not i have also not i swear to god i'm not making up this plot and he wrote this, too. Ken Walls, I think it's his brother, gets killed by a drunk driver. And this takes place in the real world. This isn't some post-apocalyptic world, which is going to sound like I'm getting into. This takes place in the real world of 1988. His his brother gets killed by a drunk driver, and the police, for some contrived reason that I can't remember, can't... Con- can't charge the guy okay so ken wall makes this mad max type vehicle with spikes in the tires and everything and he goes and becomes a vigilante hunting down drunk drivers on the street 
with his giant monster truck that's all Mad Max Fury wrote it out. But so this is a vigilante anti-drunk driving movie by the bad lieutenant guy. That sounds amazing. Uh, okay. I've seen this before. I don't think it's on DVD. It, it did, I do have it on VHS, an original VHS. So they did release it on VHS, but it was a TV movie for like ABC. But it's just, it's so bizarre. You go, it's not necessarily outside Ferrara's comfort zone because if you really think about a lot of his movies, they have that kind of weird off kilter while this says it's in the real world is definitely not the real world thing. Oh, definitely. But just when I describe that plot of like a Mad Max style anti-drunk driving movie, it sounds fucking ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like the, it sounds like Exterminator 2. It sounds like my kind of movie. Yeah, me too. So you guys are going to be going to look for the Gladiator I'm now? definitely going to look for the Gladiator. It, it remi- There was another one, uh, The Highwayman, that kind of sounds very similar, mm. where I think it was, I think that was late 80s, where it was- Are the you guy. talking about the, the the TV series with Sam Jones? No, wasn't it a movie? Wasn't it a TV movie? It was a it TV, was a TV series. Yeah, no, it was a TV series. No, no, it was a TV series. It was a two-hour pilot that then there was eight one-hour episodes. I've got them all on tape. Okay. Okay. The Highwayman, the Highwayman was a show. Alright, I, I didn't know the, it as the show. I've only, I've only known it as the, um, the TV pilot or whatever that they, they repackaged as a feature. Yeah, I guess I've only ever seen the, uh, the pilot and, uh, thought that that was kind of it. Mm. No, you know what? In all honesty, I really liked that show. I think it was better than it had a right to be. Well, Sam Jones but, is awesome. Like he, he works very well as like an action dude. Well, I, I actually, what shocked me the most was, cause at the time I didn't know that we didn't hear his voice in Flash Gordon. Oh yeah, yeah, he's that was the, that was the, yeah, that was the first time I'd heard his voice and it's like, he doesn't sound right. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I at the lot, time. Uh, his real voice is a lot sort of uh, beefier and deeper. If, if nobody's seen The Highwayman because it's a, you know, short lived show that's not on DVD, it takes place in the near future. They don't tell us when, so probably the 1990s. Sam Jones, there's something, the law has broken down in lots of places. They still have sheriffs and cops, but they have these people called highwaymen that roam around the country keeping law and order as part of the government. Oh, okay, so this it's gi- kind of Mad Max 1. Sort of. Where there's still but, sort of like law, but the society is kind of breaking down. A little bit, but this is, you know, very much for TV. And then he's got this giant truck that is is like three big rigs all strung together. And then <laughs> the, the cab opens up into a helicopter he can take out. And it can also turn invisible because, of course, it can. Of course, of course. Yeah. Isn't that how that works? I mean, is that the one you're thinking of, Cecil, for Highwayman? Uh, it's been a long time. I just remember enjoying it and seeing it a long, long time ago. I think I only ever saw it when it aired. And just remember liking it. All right, fair enough. But like, but when you think about the Gladiator, you go that both fits Abel Ferrara's style and is sort of outside of his comfort zone because you don't think of Abel Ferrara as making an anti-drunk driving movie. Yeah, but then you gotta you gotta think back to stuff like Fear City, where uh, Tom Berenger hunts a a ninja martial arts serial killer. So it kind of is in his comfort zone in a weird way. Like every now and then he'll just come out with like. This bizarre, it'll still have the same like sort of New York atmosphere that his movies tend to have, but they'll just have this ridiculous over the top, um, exploitation plot. So the gladiator does kind of make sense if you were to pair it up with something like Fear City. No, no, I'm not talking about the ridiculous aspects. I'm talking about that this is clearly a message movie. This okay. is an anti drunk driving movie. And that's not <laughs> what you think of Abel Ferrara, especially because he likes his drinky drinky. I don't know if he's ever had a drunk driving thing, but he likes his drinky drinky. It it just seems like a strange message from Abel fucking Ferrara is my well, point. I mean, I I like my drinky drinky too, but I'm not for drunk driving. I think nobody should be behind the wheel if they've even had like two or three beers, let alone like a whole six or twelve pack or doing shots of uh, tequila or whiskey or what have you and then getting behind the wheel of a car because you become impaired. So I can see somebody who does like to drink being opposed to drunk driving. Like, you you can be somebody who enjoys, you know, getting drunk in the comfort of a bar or your own home and enjoying a beer or enjoying, you know, a rum, enjoying an alcohol, but also be opposed to getting behind the wheel of something that can kill a person. Like, at, at my work, you know, people have come, they've shown up drunk, they've shown up high. The second a supervisor notices it, they're fucking 
done. They're gone. They're finished. They're not coming back. And that's going to be on their record forever of, of showing up impaired to your job because they're not going to let you behind the wheel of a forklift. You're going to be impaired. You're going to be hit by something and not realize that it's happening. So you can be into doing that sort of thing, but you can also be very much opposed to, you know, driving while, while impaired. So there is, see, this, this is something that, uh, it's, it's kind of an ignorance from people who, who don't partake in this sort of thing. You're like, what? Why, why would a drinker not want to drink and drive? Because we're not retarded. Uh, unfortunately, with my experiences, like my dad, he got into a car accident driving to work four times the legal limit at eight in the morning, and he hit a pole. And if that pole hadn't have been there, he would have driven through an old folks' home. Well, your dad is the negative example of of people who drink, the irresponsible types who will still get behind the the wheel of a car even if they're impaired. Like there are unfortunately going to be people like that. Like, okay, I've been I've been harassed by gay men before, but I'm not homophobic. I've been touched. I've been groped I've, I've had a guy whip his dick out and start jacking off yeah absolutely Fuck. yeah and i don't yeah. i don't hate gay guys i'm just like okay those are just creeps you know people get harassed just like people are people ass, are assholes get behind you know the wheel of a car drunk and end up killing somebody or themselves or causing you know public property damage it doesn't necessarily mean that other drinkers aren't gonna think you know that drunk driving is a bad thing i don't think people should drive high i don't think people should drive drunk i just think that's it's something to be enjoyed within the confines of a place either with people or on your own time you should not be subjecting the outside world to it Especially if you're, you're behind something that weighs several tons and moves at a speed that could, you know, rip someone in half. See, okay, like I said, just from my experiences, I used to work at a 24-hour gas station back in the early 90s, mm. and I worked the overnight shift. You don't know how many times I had to call the police on some shithead coming in to buy something and that they're totally sauced, they can barely stand up and oh, they just get back in their car. I must have done that dozens and dozens of times. So, yes, you might be responsible, but there are a lot of people who are like, I can still drive. I know that. I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you that there's like idiots out there. But I think in Abel's case, he's just like, he still wanted to do the message thing because he understands uh, the difference. Or yeah. he just wanted to make a, a movie that had like a vague, <laughs> like a vague message to it, but is actually just an excuse to make a super truck movie. <laughs> okay, you know, he was he was doing Miami Vice episodes and stuff at this time, so maybe like ABC or NBC mm. came up to him and was like, we would really like you to make an anti-drunk driving movie and he's like do i get to do it my way sure we're gonna do it my way it's like of course of course you are we've seen your your miami vice stuff particularly season one and a lot of season two they did have a lot of messages behind them i'm just saying abel ferrara you know with his personality and the types of movies he makes he's not the guy you think of for a message movie you never is know all, is my point it's it's uh it's it's an interesting facet i suppose like uh you never know what you're going to get from somebody who you perceive in a in a certain way for so many years what does it come down to with comfort zone do you think that in more cases or not so i'm not saying in individual cases here like we've discussed in general do you think a direct sticks to their comfort zone out of necessity, as in this, you know, I can only work in, you know, like early John Carpenter. All he was hired for was horror movies. Right. Or do you, or do you think it's more, I'm not sure I can handle a Star Wars style adventure. I don't know if I'm right for, like I said, if Tarantino was offered a, you know, sweethearted rom-com or something <laughs> like that. Do you think in more cases or not, is it a choice or is it what's thrust upon the director? I think it's both. I think sometimes, uh, directors just just want to do something out of their comfort zone simply because they don't want to uh, have their style get stale or it opens them up to more variety. Hey, I'm well known for doing horror movies, but uh, I have the opportunity to do an action film and they do the action film and it does really well. And now, okay, hey, they're known for a horror and for action. And then yeah. you also have the directors who just they need work. And they're not getting the scripts that they like or they're not getting anything. And then finally something drops in their lap, a documentary or a episode of something on the Disney Channel. And they say, well, I need to eat, so I'm going to do this. It's like we were talking about with Richard Stanley, who is, was making his income 
doing script after script, even if they weren't picked up, he was still getting paid for them. So it's like, you, you just got to keep working in some cases. And also for some people, like you said, the opportunity knocks to do an adventure film or a romance film or a drama or like a big action. And this was the case for Ray Liotta when he did that. What was that one? It was like a very Escape from New York style movie. I think it was just called Escape. No Escape. No Escape. Yes. He did that one when he was offered it. He was excited to do it because he had always at, at some point in time wanted to do like a big action movie. He was like, I've always kind of wanted to play an action hero, so I'm going to do this movie. So I'm, I think in a lot of cases, it's like that with filmmakers too. It's like, I've been doing this for so long. It's like, I kind of want to tackle an action film or I want to, I want to do a horror film. I want to see what I can do with this other genre and, you know, step out from the comfort zone that I've been, been in for so long. And a lot of other cases too, as Cecil said, I think he really hit the nail on the head is sometimes you just got to work. It's like, okay, I'm being presented with this weird, uh, anti, drunk driving kind of message movie and I'm going to do it or I'm going to do this comedy that the studio wants me to do because sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and make what's what's thrown your way so you can uh, make sure that you eat that week. As he said, I think it's it's definitely a bit of both. I look at like like Joe Dante has a very pronounced style. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, like even when he did like CSI New York, it still had some of some of his style because, you know, you had to still be the CSI style where I don't see it. It's like, you know, he's directed like eight episodes of Hawaii Five O. <laughs> I don't know. When I think Joe Dante, Hawaii Five O episodes are not what I think of. Not Does that quite. make sense? <laughs> I, I wacky, think, I, wacky, <laughs> wacky. Yeah, I, I think Joe really. Dante should uh, should be allowed to direct anything. His, his his stamp is one of the most his like directorial stamps. Like when you when you look at a Joe Dante movie and, and it, or a Joe Dante anything that he's directed, there's just a certain quality that's always so enjoyable. I hate to bring this up again, but going back to the uh, the In Search of Darkness documentary, the footage that we had of Joe Dante talking about his movies, there's such a passion and joy there that. That, like mm-hmm. you don't get from a lot of other directors. Oh, he it's, always is like that. He always just loves to talk so movies. So happy, like he's 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 one of those people that you can tell he's yes. Oh, this happened and it was hilarious. Let me tell you another story. And it's he's just full of stories and great ideas and just he's very talented. And why do we not have more Joe Dante movies? Well, okay, but then you also have something with a director leaving their comfort zone. Sometimes it, it doesn't happen, even if they try like when rob zombie tried to make that crow movie mm. okay it's it, in a weird way it sounds like it would fit but in a weird way because it was a science fiction movie set in the future and in space i don't see rob zombie making a star trek style movie you know <laughs> true i just don't well the, he could make the crow... uh, i'm sure he could do like a galaxy of terror style movie but not necessarily star trek yeah well the the crow that he was gonna do was based off of one of the crow novels there was a lot of of crow like standalone books that came yeah. out and uh i could see i don't know like i could see it working i think that he's really talented if he's doing something that he either has a, like his own idea or he can like because i'm really looking forward to uh three from hell oh, of course uh because i think it's going to be going back to more of his wheelhouse uh the halloween thing there's the i've we've already talked about the death i just i think that um i don't know i'm i'm he's somebody i'm willing to give more chances to even though i really didn't like lords of salem i saw what he was or going 31 for. oh i got oh, you know what i completely blocked out 31 all right no f- <laughs> don't give me any more chance <laughs> <laughs> 31 was your last chance and you blew it guy you blew oh man because 31 yeah 31 he had complete creative control over and 31 should have been terrible. awesome it 31 was all how it was shot that was really what it came down to. The fact that he decided to do it all handheld is what ruined it for me. If they would have done God. a traditional, uh, you know, steady cam, I think it would have been a lot better because the concept was there. It's mm-hmm. just, well, uh, I mean, you had, you had mini Hitler for crying out loud. Speaking Spanish. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was a bizarre movie. It should have worked. Well, but with, man, did I not like it. With 31, it was also, and maybe it's because the footage was not good, the editing choices. Yeah. That movie, I think it has an edit every five seconds to something else it was like okay rob i don't know if this is what you're going for or if this is the only way you could try to save this piece of shit but this movie is garbage on every level and you need to just stop pretending you made 31 because it's awful i think with him it's everything is a deliberate choice like if there's one thing i can say about rob 
Zombie that's positive is he's very uncompromising. He'll just make the movie that he wants to make. Unfortunately for us, we did not enjoy 31, but I'm sure there's people that have. I know people that really like it, but we didn't like it. But the the take-home point is he's making the movies that he wants to make. Now, frankly, I prefer the editing in something like uh, House of a Thousand Corpses or Devil's Rejects especially is brilliantly edited and a very great film and something I'm hoping that he's going to be returning to with Three from Hell. I mean, considering that's like a trilogy of, of that anyway. It's the third film in the, you know, Otis and uh, Firefly family or whatever trilogy. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully it's not edited like 31. I, I just want, no, th- this needs to happen. No matter what we just said about 31, I want Rob Zombie to make a Disney Channel movie. <laughs> I would watch this. I want just to see if he can. Okay, I want Rob Zombie to make Hocus Pocus 2. Rob Zombie to do Cadet Kelly 2. I want Rob <laughs> Zombie to do, like, uh, a Smart House reboot or something. No! Oh, okay, let, let's move away from Disney. Warner Brothers. I want Rob Zombie to make a Scooby-Doo film. I think I think we should just get, uh, Rob Zombie should just do the Lazy Town movie. There you go. How insane would that be? I, I actually right. think that would work strangely. Cause it's it's strangely, strangely enough, yes. Strangely yeah. enough, there's a lot of elements there that would actually mesh in a strangely good way. Yes. I, I want Uwe Boll to make the sequel to Detective Pokemon, <laughs> to Detective Pikachu. I think Uwe Boll wants to make the sequel. To, I think that's something even he would be like, yeah, you give, you give me money, I make the movie. All right, on that note, we have a Patreon. You can help us out at 1201Beyond. Just look for that or radio. Drome on Patreon. Every cent helps because we need to keep the lights on. If you can't tell, my voice sounds a little different on this episode because my computer died and I'm on my laptop right now, which is like a five-year-old laptop. So I hope this sounds okay once I edit it. We have got the Patreon, we've got the Adam and Eve codes, and then remember Nord, 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. So that said, even if people are on Nord, where can they find Cecil? They can find me over at goodbedflix.com as well as goodbedflix on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And Peter, the radioactive ape up in Canada, can be found where? On Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook the Cinemasochist, YouTube the Cinemasochist, of course on 1201beyond.com as well, and Patreon at Cinematica if you want to donate. And of course, as Josh said, use our VPN code, use NordVPN. We've sold out, and it's a good thing. It might mean more money for us, which means more content, so please support Support us as best you can. Support the Patreon for 1201beyond.com. Support uh, Cecil's if he's got one. Support mine. Just support. Union. Unify. I didn't sell out. I bought in. (laughs) And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.